can't do this anymore. We're we're going in. And the gears of war started turning because obviously this, this didn't start in February of last year. This was a long planned out invasion. There were a lot of logistics put into this as, as terrible of a job as they have done. They made long, vast plans for this. And it's kind of comical that they've done such a shitty job with all the time and effort they put into it ahead of time I, I always find it to be funny that they planned this for two days and it unraveled in two weeks it's absolutely hilarious these guys are a bunch of fucking idiots uh <laughs> sorry uh daryl go ahead yeah uh, two things actually um i think uh i think it was poroshenko was in uh, office when uh obama was there and I think Obama was a skeptical about sending the uh, aid that he had he asked for then because we weren't sure. So I think it was uh, what 2018. I think that's when Zelensky came in. If I'm not mistaken, he came in in 2018. No, he was uh, Zelensky was elected in 2019. I just looked. 2019. Okay. Yeah, he was in May 29. Uh, 20. He was inaugurated May 20th of 2019. Yeah, because I know we were. It was everybody was kind of. I know I was a little upset with Obama uh, when uh, he didn't send. He wasn't sending either the troops or the aid over in his last year or so in office. Uh, I think it was a bumble on his mistake, but. Uh, uh, but I think he had good reason, considering the the situation that uh, with the uh, uh, with the corruption and things like that. So we didn't know where that equipment would go. I guess so. We sent non-lethal aid at that time. Um, but as far as uh, one of the other things, uh, Jade made me think of something with the um, logistics side. One of the things that we do with ours, um, when I used to work on the pre-position programs, uh, one of the things that we used to do is preserve all of the equipment. And a lot of the engines and uh, a lot of the mechanical, you know, moving parts to equipment was preserved. And that actually takes a bit of time to um, get things ready to go when you're talking about sending equipment over, unless we're sending things that are being used at the time, if it's been in, if it's in our long-term storage uh, areas and we put it under a like level two or level three storage, a lot of things are wrapped up, taped up, and they have a lot of preservative, even in the engines, we put preservative oils that you don't want to run that engine using that preservative oil because it'll like put STP in an engine. That stuff will gum up quick. So um, I know that's one of the other things that in the logistics side that they would have to worry about and get the equipment ready for the Ukrainians because you don't want them to have to change the oil and ungrease the outside of the cylinders and all of this other stuff because it's been in storage and we did a lot, you know, because we put uh, equipment in uh, somewhat controlled temperature uh, uh, warehouses so that we wouldn't have the problem with that the uh, Russians are having like with seals and that nature. A lot of our stuff was wrapped up and preserved, you know, for just not to have those type of problems. 
You mean you didn't leave your tires sitting out in the sun to dry rot? No, no. We actually put, they sprayed them down with like a, uh, like your uh, uh, armor all type stuff. Yeah, all our tires were sprayed down in some cases. Um, like the barrels of the, like the barrels of the ta- of, of the uh, tanks, they would we would put a thick thick coat of grease all the way up the inside of the uh, barrels and put a uh, or we'd spray we had this uh, coating spray that you would spray up into the barrels and then you'd put this paper up into the barrel to preserve it to keep moisture so that the barrels wouldn't rust out sitting up just in you know. Um, and put the barrel caps on them, of course. But, uh, you know, because moisture can get anywhere. Temperature changes can pull in moisture. So you, you try to alleviate that that uh, that uh, from happening as best you could. And when I'm talking about you looking at all of the sights, the, all of the glasses, everything, they would have this metal tape put over them to keep them from uh, cl- uh, where they wouldn't cloud up and think of that because if you sit even glass, a lot of those glasses have plastic they have a, like a ballistic material between plates of glass and so you if it, ex- if it was exposed to light for long periods or uh, you know just to the elements, you'll see glasses start clouding up. So you you'd preserve those. Um, so there's a lot of things that if we've had it in storage, you got to go through and de, you know, basically get it into working order before you can actually end it out. You got to take it out of the mothball and degrease it. <laughs> they don't have those problems in Russia because they just pull all that equipment off and go sell it at the pawn shop or melt it down for uh, scrap metal. Get that precious stuff out of there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you you see that man, Daryl. You're the man, dude. Like, cause I I love when you I love when you like educate me. It's awesome. Uh, uh hold on, let me get the order kind of back here. So we're gonna go ginger. Thank you, Daryl. Yeah, yeah, Daryl, you're the man, dude. Yeah, no doubt. Most welcome. Most welcome. I'm dropping back down. All right, brother. We'll talk soon. All right. So, Jin, yeah, I just, I just want to want to make some comments on the uh, on some of the things I heard that uh, you know. We should do this and do do that. I was I would let many people I would say in America don't think about two other scenarios. So so for the illustration purposes, let me just say, let's say we have a country. Craig is the good guy. He was elected. I'm the hidden authoritarian. Okay, so we are invaded by Russia. So in many countries, it will actually play out like this. So so for example, America is sending us weapons. We're going to fight it out. So. When the war gets into age of attrition, I'm going to store up all the American uh, weapons I receive and let attrition fall on crazy people so he gets weakened. When the Russians are defeated, it's my turn. Or, Why let's say, what's that? No, it's... So the other, the other scenario is Americans come in, do all the job, right? Bomb everybody and just get, get the bad guys out. Now, Craig wins the war, but I'm going to start to start a disinformation campaign. And I say, listen, it's really not Craig. It's because Craig is American stooge. It's really Americans 
who is running this country now. In a country in a transformation, you will run into all kinds of problems, challenges. So I'm going to wait for that moment, strike out, and say, look, Greg, really you guys gave too much credit to him, right? So next time, when you are in grievance, elect me. When I came onto board, guess who I'm going to reach out to, to make friends with? Russians. Now, look at these two scenarios. America put in a lot of resource, do a lot of good things. Eventually, everything falls into Russians' hands. People like Zelensky is like a lottery win. These are the things can only be tested out, cannot be planned for. We wouldn't know Zelensky is Zelensky until one week into the war. Many people, many people would do these things. Why would they do that? Think about it. Afghanistan. We gave Afghanistan a lot of aids. But Ghani fled Kabul on day one. He took away $150 million in his bank account. That's a pretty good deal. So I would say the Ukrainians this time, they really put their acts together. You got Zelensky. But in many other countries, it doesn't work like that. You cannot bank on every country will have a Zelensky. So therefore, to think that we, we should, on day one, send all these things, even like, you know, Colonel Vindman, we should have done this in January. In January, December, we wouldn't know. The test is not there yet. So that's my point. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Um, we're going to go to Hamilton and then Gurney and then finance. Hamilton, please go ahead. Thank you, host. Uh, thank you, great panel. I learned a lot. Well, um, uh, I, I want to go, go to the previous discussion about the dichotomy between um, uh, authoritarian regimes and uh, uh, democracy with regard to the response to um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, I, Come on now! Now the dichotomy is is going to a little bit more complicated because we saw uh, India, the largest kind of the, the democracy in the world, actually uh, bought a lot of crude oil from from Russia, and uh, a lot of people in India actually support Russia, which is very astonishing. Uh, we saw the largest authoritarian regime, uh, which is China, um, uh, is going to a little bit awkward. The situation is 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 being very awkward. We saw a lot of. Uh, people within China actually disapprove uh, what Russians do uh, in, in Ukraine. So um, nothing is going to be going to be very uh, very conf- confusing. I mean, American uh, American people uh, didn't really uh, happy about how much uh, support American has given to uh, to Ukraine. Uh, a lot of people saying we need more support. We need to give more weapons to Ukraine. Uh, but let's wait, let, let us see uh, what, what Ukraine, Ukrainians have done so far. They're trying to, um, you know, complain about uh, the, 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 the amount of support they received from, from NATO. They say, uh, Zelensky say NATO didn't really give us to, uh, enough weapons uh, and, and, and leading us to uh, um, um, uh, disadvantageous position. Uh, facing um, the Russians' uh, troops, so I, I, I'm a little bit confused about the situation right now. Um, I hope everybody, everybody can educate me. And uh, yeah, that's that's what what I want to uh, uh, share with you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Hamilton. Uh, Ryan, did you want to speak to that to the oil question or or economic question or no? Okay, sorry. Uh, no, I only caught half of that. I was trying to read something else. Sidebar at the time. 
No, that's okay. That's if okay. You could summarize energy oil questions. Yeah, Hamilton, can you just repeat your question regarding India and and oil? I think there was that point that we that I I wanted to address, but can you repeat that just to make sure we heard it correctly? I'm sorry. Thank you, host. Just wondering how how would you look at the India's Indians Indian support uh, to Russia, and how um, how to oh, solve yeah. that problem? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll touch on that. Um, India's in a tough place right now uh, in a post-COVID economy. If you'll remember, it it wasn't two years ago that they were suffering so desperately that they were burning burning people on mass funeral pyres and soccer fields. Um, the world economy was crippled by COVID and they're doing the best they can to dig out of that. Uh, they have a very low GDP. They're, you know, one of the most populous nations in the world and probably don't earn all that much money. So I can't really hold it against them that they're buying, uh, affordable energy for their people. I'm not happy about it, but I would be remiss in slapping their hand when they're purchasing what they can afford right now. Um, I very much wish they weren't buying Russian oil, but at the same time, I understand desperate times call for desperate measures, and I'm not in the same economic situation they are, and I don't know what they're domestic politics look like right now. There's probably some politics involved with it. Um, For a politician to say that they're going to ban Russian oil imports is going to cause domestic energy prices to go up and will potentially lose them an election if they're facing one. Um, That's a real factor that goes on even in American politics. Can I I, I chime in here? Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. There are two countries... Um, when we ask about their foreign policy, who are at least somewhat nominally aligned with the U.S., who you have to analyze independently, right? They're not just broad U.S. ally or broad democracy. The other country I would analyze their behavior independently is Saudi Arabia, but they're clearly not a democracy. In India's case, um, they're not poor in the way Haiti is poor, in the way North Korea is poor. Right? India has is a medium wealth nation, but they're per capita GDP is not the highest. So while there's a huge Indian middle class, there's a massive population of middle-class Indians living middle-class Indian lives. There's also massive numbers of poor people and India wants to do more business, right? India's in it to make money. It's a numbers thing. They've, they've got a gazillion. Right. But like they do have a large middle class in ways that you can't, say that in many other poor nations, right? They're a middle-income country. Yeah, you yeah. also have to remember for it's politics... not the poverty nation. <laughs> right, right. But the other thing about their politics you have to remember is India's history with Western democracies is not totally positive, right? Britain treated them like crap when they were a colony. <laughs> when you're a colony of a, of, a, of a Western nation, it's not a good experience. Um, their experience, you know, look, in World War II... Churchill's lauded in um, Britain in next door to India is Bangladesh, where he caused a massive famine by exporting all their food for the war effort with, while saying incredibly racist things towards uh, the Bangladeshi people who are very similarly ethnic to Indians. Right. So India doesn't have the history to just be immediately generous. And from the Indian perspective, when they see Germans 
and other Europeans buying $800 million a day of petrol products, they basically go, what's this? Why do you want us to, uh, why do you, you know, part of their comment is, you know, Im- not, not embargo for, for thee and not for me. They're not listening, right? They're like, you're not even doing it themselves, but they're not saying it quite that bluntly because the Indians aren't blunt people. The other thing is they've actually had trade talks with the U.S., and they very clearly want to have a lot more access to our markets, and they want to sell a lot more stuff here. Like That's their goal. The, the quad. The quad finance. Right. The quad is breaking down a bit. That's why I'm not even bringing it up. Oh, right. okay. It just started. Okay, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Right, but if you, look at, if you look at the trade and defense agreements since – if you look at the agreements being announced since the Ukraine war has happened, we're seeing a lot more about Japan being announced in coordination – because Japan is 100% on board, right? Japan is is here with the embargoes. They're raising points about Sakhalin Islands. And if you think Japanese nationalism is a good or bad thing, either way, it appears to be showing its head again and appears to be back in some form. So Japan is acting one way. India is kind of going the other way because they're like, hey, we've played this game before where you guys make out okay on the backs of the Indians. And we're a democratic country, so that doesn't, ring is true to them, right? And the other side is there's things they want from us that we're just not giving them. Like they'd love to sell us, you know, really goods made with really poor labor. That goes against some of our economic goals. Um, So there's things we could try to do to give them what we want. I'm unclear how much we should do that. But on the other hand, there's Russia who's saying they're like, we just need to trade with anybody because we're screwed. Um, and Russia should be, and I would love it if India was on board. This is not saying that I, I think this is a good solution, just that you need to analyze Indian behavior as unique to the Indian experience. They don't have the history with the West that's particularly positive. That is definitely part of their cultural consciousness, as much as they're friendlier to us in other countries that we have bad history with. They're not North Korea, again, right? Um, but their domestic politics is they want something that we're not giving them, this is a theme also with Saudi Arabia, if you ever want to talk about that. Um, Saudi Arabia wants us to uh, blow up Iran, basically, and we don't want to. Um, whether or not what you think about the Iranian policy is irrelevant, it's just that they want us to do something and we're doing the opposite, and so they're not playing ball. In India, I'd say it's kind of similar. They want to make a bunch of money with us, and they want to be able to sell us a bunch of stuff and more mercantilist policies. That's against our own domestic industrial policy. That's against what the Eurozone wants to do. And they really aren't interested in embargoing somebody or listening to be told they should embargo somebody when we're not doing it. We being the West, not actually the U.S., the U.S. is embargoing. But like when Germany is importing a ton of petrol products that they need, India's like, dude, you're not doing it for what matters for you. We're not going to do it here either. So those two things, from everything I can tell, are part of the Indian calculus as far as their government and industry is concerned. Um, and that's... And that's going to be there regardless of if any of the disinformation you've heard about that is both directed India from Russia and gaining some purchase in India from Russia. Even if that was quashed out, these incentive issues are still going to remain. Thank you. Thank you. You brought up Sockland. I have a question about Sockland. Ryan, 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 real real quick, guys. I know you guys want to jump on this, but Gurney's been so patient. 
and sure. I feel, yeah, and, yeah, I feel and I and I feel that we're gonna go off on this. Absolutely. But I give, yeah, yeah, I want to give Gurney a try. Gurney, go ahead. I know you've been waiting patiently, brother. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Craig, and I'm I'm glad uh, Daryl stepped back up here because um, Daryl might appreciate some of this. Um, Hamilton had asked a question. The previous speaker had asked a question um, behind after the India part. I think there was something about um, um, NATO equipment. He had asked, um, and it's sort of been a theme of the night. People are asking about you know equipment, equipment. Um, so maybe maybe I could give my experience um, on. On wartime equipment, um, but before I do that, and, and and I'll make it brief and succinct. But before I do that, um, I, I, I do want to make two statements to not misconstrue anything that I, that I say later. Um, please keep giving support. Please keep giving. Please keep giving to Ukraine. Um, they will always need more equipment. There will never be enough for them. So please keep giving them equipment. Um, so so with, with with that being said, if I could just add my some, some of my um, experience in, in the past. Um, so I, I was involved in the Iraq conflict. And so if you go, if you go way back in your history books, um, pull, pull those out, um, some, some 20 years ago here. Uh, so if the invasion was, was circa 2003 and I went in theater, um, almost two and a half years after that, um, there, there, there's sometimes this disconnect between, um, what, what, the, the public or, or the general populace sort of thinks that, that militaries are capable of. Um, and, and I'll give credit to our, our movie industry and our films because the, the Pentagon has a good budget office that, that specifically does things um, to, to um, portray our capabilities. And in some cases possibly overestimate them. It, it's, it's a great, uh, you know, information warfare. It, it's, it's amazing. Um, and I will say that, you know, on, on, with, with, a tier teams and, and, and smaller limited engagements. Some of that stuff is, is incredibly accurate. Um, but when crap hits the fan and it's a, a much larger or wider um, or large scale engagement or theater wide engagement, a lot of that, um, you know, a lot of those expectations we might have uh, about superiority and, and, you know, we are, we are this, we can get equipment anywhere. Or we have the best or this and that. A, a lot of it is counterintuitive and goes out the window. So just, just real brief, some, some, <laughs> Two, two and a half years into that that conflict of of which it was um, a, a war um, that the United States um, um, went into uh, I, I, I'm trying to figure out the word and say here willingly or chose so chose the time and place theoretically um, but two and a half years into that so we're, we're 70 some days into Ukraine um, and just to give context uh, you're you're talking about units that have trained on equipment and have equipment yet that equipment isn't in theater or is in route to theater or can't yet be in theater so this is not like you know new new equipment to anybody but this is not a lack of armored vehicles a, a lack of javelins none of that right but i can tell you that that my first weeks in theater we were welding acetylene and oxygen tanks on the back of soft skin humvees to use as gun mounts because we didn't even have gun mounts and, and, and it defies explanation. I'm just saying is, is I can't point a finger as to why they, they were, we're not there. There's just so many moving parts um, that all the plans you can make when it actually hits the fan. And even though you've trained on it, you have it, things are in route, things are supposed to be there or you're falling in on equipment. Um, it sounds like you're supposed to have it, but I just want to say the reality is as many times and when it's a large engagement, you simply don't. Um, we were buying. Um, so, so as many things change here, there, there's some things that never change. I mean, we were buying GPS units that were smaller and lighter. They weren't military GPS units, weren't supposed to use them, but you know what? They were a heck of a lot um, faster at the time than, than the larger military plugger. Um, 
we were in a transitionary period. There was some new gear available. It wasn't yet issued to all units. We were out there with our personal funds buying newer, lighter helmets, right? Newer, lighter Kevlar um, rails for the weapons. Why? Because we live in an age where we have information at our fingertips. And so if it's out there, we're going to try to get it. Um, a troop should always ask for more equipment. Um, and to anybody out there, um, the, you know, if you're on the ground, they always tell you. They're, if you ask them what they need, there will never be an end in sight. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. There will be, you know. There will the the list would be you know a million pages long if you if you could and it should be that long, um, but I'm just saying is is you can't always satisfy it. So I, I just want to say you know, in the seventy some days we watched here, um, you know it seems like they're doing some heroic heavy lifts the the, the Ukrainian allies here to get things in theater and trained. Um, so don't please don't stop asking for more equipment for them, um, but just recognize that that the extent that it is happening or what you are seeing is substantial and give credit to those guys that are getting it because, you know, I, I wish I had some of those things two and a half years into, uh, you know, a planned deployment uh, that, that some of them are getting now uh, in which I, I didn't have that. And I'm saying is, this, so this is, you know, top tier units and, and trained on equipment and trained on pieces and the, the equipment belongs to the unit yet it's unavailable to the unit when, when you're trying to actually use it at the place of deployment. Um, and so not to get, not, not to get into the nuts and bolts of that, but I just want to say is, you know, the reality is a little bit more sobering than, than our Hollywood imaginations lead us to believe. So I, I just got to give credit to everybody that's, that's giving support to the Ukrainians and making it happen because to my eyes and to my ears, um, it seems like warp speed. And even if it doesn't seem like it's enough, and even if it will never be enough, it just seems, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like something I have not seen before. And so I just want to give credit to, to everyone who's helping make that happen. So thanks. Thanks, Gurney. I appreciate it. Um, you, you brought up Daryl, so I want to give Ch- Daryl a chance. To kind of Maria Aid has their finger on that pulse. I would agree with that. Yeah, wholeheartedly. Um. Daryl, uh, did you want to add on to what Gurney was saying, or did you have something else? No, this was uh, about uh, what the previous gentleman was going to uh, – he was saying about uh, Japan and India and things like that. And uh, one of the things that I noticed when I was in Japan is that there was always a nationalism uh, there. Uh, there were places that were closed off to foreigners uh, to, to a certain extent, and so – um, you know, when, when people talk about, you know, nationalism, I believe they always have had a nationalism. It's just that they had never, they have, they had, uh, pushed back their militaristic nationalist, uh, goals because of our agreements after the war. But, um, during, uh, what, Desert Storm, I mean, Desert Shield, I think it was, they deployed their first troops since, you know, forever. Um, but uh, that was just one of the things that I, I just, you know, when people talk about the, you know, nationalism there, that was, I'm like, that's, it always seems like there was that undercurrent to it, uh, to their nationalism, you know, just having a really closed off society in certain aspects. Um, and as far as India and us, I'd never really understood why we in India, considering the number of their uh, expats that live here in the States, I never understood why we, there was an animo, you know, some type of animosity between us 
uh, you know, and it was it would seem like we had a natural, um, uh, we would have a natural uh, relationship, but you know, as time went on, I realized that we really had a strained one, and I never understood why because we never had any colonization or et cetera or et cetera you know, with them. You know, I'll 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 say this, and maybe Ryan or Finance can answer it more succinctly. But I'll say this regarding India: it has been since the Cold War one of the leading countries in the non-aligned movement, right? Because everybody during the Cold War kind of had to pick a side, right? That was kind of like the thing to do back then was to pick a side: you were either with the free world or you were with the communists. China, excuse me, I beg your pardon. India was always very much: we're going to go our own way, we're going to go the Indian way. We're going to buy arms from Russia and we're going to do capitalist deals with with Europe. Right. We're going to buy oil from Saudi Arabia. We're going to we're just going to do our own thing, because you remember, you have two of the largest populated countries in the world on the border with each other. India and China fought a war back in 1963, I believe, or 1962, I believe it was. They fought a border war. We didn't rush to their aid. Right. We, we weren't there, you know, backing India. Obviously, we were dealing with the Cuban Missile Crisis at the time, but we weren't there to kind of like get their back, right? I'm not saying we should have. I'm just saying we did. We just didn't do it. I'm not like judging the United States for that. But India has historically tried to find its own way in the world because part of the issue of being a, a very old colony of, of the British Empire is that being aligned with a certain kind of alliance like in the west was almost like a kind of recolonization because then whatever britain said you kind of had to march to the beat of their drum because what britain said the u.s said and what the u.s said was what happened in the free world right and so it left a bad taste in india's mouth i believe india was colonized from what the late 1600s to about 1946 right give or take and so 1946 1947 and so it was after that that it was like we don't want to do we don't want to align ourselves with the free nations even though we're a democracy even though we're democratic we're not going to align ourselves with western europe because then whatever western europe says we kind of have to be we have to march the beat of their drum not to be too redundant but just to kind of drive the point home that they didn't want to be communists right they became a capitalist democratic society to a certain degree but it they just didn't want to do it right they just didn't want to become part of the west and so I wouldn't say it's animosity as though they hate the United States. We do have a lot of expats. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if people know, but when you're brought up in India, you're taught English and Hindi, right? You're, you're taught both languages in school. And it's very much a part of their culture. But it's also a part of their culture to say, you know what? We're a large country. We're a, we're a, we're a growing wealth country. I mean, go to Mumbai. I mean, Mumbai is a beautiful city. Absolutely gorgeous. And... It's just one of those things where it just wants to do its own thing, right? And and I think that that's just – I mean, they're what? Their democracy is like, what, like 80 years old? They've been in this country? In, that, ahead, same, in that same time span, they've also been a little preoccupied with their uh, the realignment of their own borders. Uh, their border was drawn by their colonizer, and since then, uh, both Bangladesh and Pakistan have emerged on the scene. One of those being a new yeah, that's, yeah, that's certainly didn't, yeah, that certainly didn't leave a good taste in their mouth. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's 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 complex. Um, we we live in a world that's very diverse, 
and we end up in our own little silos and think that everyone has the same politics or opinions or perspectives that that we do from from our neck of the world um but just within india they have you know a billion people and uh, a lot of religious and political diversity that we're unaware of just by virtue of not living there um so they've they they're hard to sum them up in in a couple of words to be honest <laughs> i've i've got a very good friend who's uh family immigrated to the US from India i was actually uh just recently in dc for his wedding yeah my wife is from afghanistan and she really kind of explains some of the uh like the hindustan and how india and uh india and pakistan's border all came to be and the whole uh uh kashmiri region and things like that so i from her i picked up a lot, you know i i was always taught you know western history and when we got together she kind of kind of gave me a little bit of education on that that whole uh near uh western asia um uh aspect of the world and I, i'm you know we watch a lot of bollywood movies and things like that and it's like you re- I've, I've really gotten it, you know interested in the history and stuff like that over that of that area and so it was you know it was it just it was something that i really like i said with the whole uh relationship with india it just kind of threw me for a loop for a long time until after you know i started getting into the the whole history of the area and stuff like that let me let me draw let me let me draw a parallel back to ukraine if i could right so to understand why this is important so i know i've gotten some dms and some people are like why are we talking about india this is a space for ukraine like why are we doing this it's it to, to me in my mind it makes sense because you're talking about a nation who has a cultural heritage that goes back i know india goes back you know thousands of years india goes back to sanskrit goes back to alexander the great almost two centuries almost two millennia maybe more more than actually probably five to be honest with you but Ukraine is in the same basket. It was an old colony of an imperialist power that had its own separate culture, its own religion, its own language, and it was it was violently suppressed, just like the British did to India. There's just no two ways about it, right? India was violently conquered by the British, and Ukraine was violently conquered by the Russians for, what two or three times over its over the lifespan from the Poles to the to the soviet union and those people were wiped off not wiped off but it was it was genocide right what stalin did to the ukrainians was genocide and it's happening again and so the reason that we're bringing this up the reason why this matters is because yes india has some arms sales going on with russia and it's buying petro and we're, we're talking about these things but keep in mind countries that have been colonized been subjected to genocide don't really have a good taste in their mouths when it comes to working with ex-colonizers, right? Hence what you see between Ukraine and Russia. Hence what you see between India and its relationship with the West. Didn't leave a good taste in their mouth. And so you want to draw this comparison because what we're seeing in Ukraine is a continuation of a people who are trying to find their way out of this colonist mentality and find their way to sovereignty. And what we're talking about with India is a good relation as to how it can be complicated, it can be difficult, 
But people have to understand that Ukraine is not just a part of the Soviet Union or was a part of Russia. Ukraine is Ukraine. It is its own language, own religion, own people. And, and I think we need to kind of understand this in a world context, if I could. Um, so that hopefully that kind of answers your question as to why. It goes beyond oil. I'm just going to say that. It goes well beyond its oil purchases um, and its arms. Um, and to Ryan's point, it's buying oil because it is currently buying oil from Saudi Arabia. It is currently going through some economic difficulties, but it's strategically uh, unaffiliated. And it's kept that way for a long time. When it joined the Quad, the quote unquote, the Quad, the Quad being Japan, Australia, the United States and India. That was probably one of the first times that you saw India step out onto the world stage and say, there's no formal agreement here. Nobody's signing a treaty of defense. There's no South Korean, Japanese, NATO agreement being signed here. But it was a statement by these four nations, the United States, Japan, Australia and India, that they had a common interest. And that was self-defense against an aggressive uh, China. A lot of people are trying to compare the Quad to, you know, the the, the Pacific NATO, right? Uh, Obama tried to set up the TPP, which was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was supposed to be the formation of the new Pacific NATO. That was the goal. But what you're seeing here is that India is trying to ride that rail of not being aligned, but not being alone, right? Because it wants allies if it ever get into a confrontation with China. Yeah, Colby, go ahead. I, I just, uh, not to nitpick too much, I just want to clarify that TPP was just a trade agreement. It wasn't a military alliance exactly. like uh, NATO, just uh, just that analogy, just so, we're, uh, just so the audience understands what the idea behind it was. That the main purpose was just to form a, a trade block um, to counteract China in the Indo-Pacific region was the um, the idea behind it. Yeah, yeah. Thank. They, they, I, I realized as soon as I said, it, I realized as soon as I said, it, I was like, "Wait, it's not a military alliance." But but people back then were trying to phrase it as though they were trying to build a European Pacific. Was some of the language that was being described. Sorry, but I, yeah, you're right. You're right, Colby. Um, Daryl or Ryan, go for it. Yeah, wasn't it a, an element of Seato, the Southeast Asia Trade Organization? Uh oh, are you gonna stump Colby? Colby. Sorry, I'm responding to DMs. CETO, uh, uh, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, was uh, sort of supposed to be the the NATO alliance of the uh, of Southeast Asia, but it was not very uh, long lived um, and has been defunct for some time. Um, the Quad, um, I guess you could say, is sort of perhaps an effort to revive, um, you know, a more regional security pact. Um, the United States already has uh, bilateral, trilateral defense agreements with a lot of countries in Asia. Uh, they have, a, I think it's a trilateral pact with Australia and New Zealand. Uh, there's, uh, you know, American uh, alliances with South Korea and Japan. Um, but there isn't anything really on a more multilateral level like NATO. Um, the Quad is, you know, sort of along those lines, but it's not a formal security alliance um, at this point. It's you know, more of a, a forum for dialogue and cooperation and hasn't advanced to that level. Um, I would certainly argue that there is great utility in such a thing, potentially, if it can be um, agreed to and, and structured correctly. Um, I would also agree, uh, argue that there is um, great value in TPP as well. It died for political reasons in the United States. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get too far into politics, 
Um, I'll just say that I am a free trader, although I understand the uh, skepticism against uh, trade. Um, but I think that the the main thing to take away is that uh, countries like China and Russia are not reliable trading partners for very obvious reasons. To bring it back to Ukraine, um, we can see the result of um, countries believing that they could have a um, a cooperative trading relationship with bad actors like Russia, when in reality, Russia just viewed that as a uh, tool for warfare, really. Um, their trading relationship with, uh, with uh, Europe, Russia and Europe, was a way for uh, Europe, Russia to undermine European security uh, by making them dependent on their energy. Um, so it's become very obvious that there are lots of bad actors in the world that uh, it is not worthwhile having a trading relationship with, but that doesn't mean that countries should just swear off trade altogether um, because it can be a productive tool for uh, diplomacy, um, mutual economic development um, to unite like-minded countries against these bad actors in the world. Can I say something? Can you hear? Um, one, one second. One second. You absolutely can. Um, here's what we want to do. Sorry. People like to walk their chihuahuas outside. Give me one second here. <laughs> So, uh, yes, you can. Go to the bottom right-hand side of your phone, please. You'll see that part with the plus sign. Go ahead and click that. And then you want to raise your hand, um, and then we will put you in the queue. I know Hamilton has had his hand up for quite some time, so we're going to go Hamilton, and then Huey, and then Ryan, please. Thank you. Thank you, host. Well, uh, great response, and I learned a lot. Uh, with regard to, um, you know, American strategic stance over uh, what happened in Ukraine, you know, many, many people, many, uh, you know, scholars argue that uh, it is uh, kind of also balancing the strategic culture inherited from British Empire. You know, well, that's what British do- have done in, in the past, you know, hundreds of years to review to the Euro- to what happens in Europe. Um, you know, the professors like uh, like uh, uh, John Sheimer from UChicago. Well, he argued that, uh, I mean, it's not this is not surprising to him. The American stance is is to make sure that there's no great empire rising rising in, in, in Asia, Europe. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the nature of Ukraine war is actually a proxy war. It's a, it's a, it's a war between um, the West and, and Russia. And this kind of argument has a huge market out, out there. A lot of people believe in it. Uh, I'm not sure whether, whether any of you, anyone of you have, uh, have uh, you know, has reflections on, on this. The second, what I want to mention is that, uh, you know, what, what, what happened in, in, in the globe, you know, between uh, authoritarian and uh, regimes and, uh, and the West is very much complicated than, 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 than in the Cold War. Uh, today we saw, I mean, China is, is more than 150 people, uh, 50 countries' largest trade partners. And yes, there are authoritarian regimes, and, and, and people dislike dislike them, especially after what happened in Hong Kong, right? The protests out there. Uh, China is still an authoritarian regime, but uh, there are a lot of trade partners of most countries in the world. How how difficult that can be if the West treat China as another Soviet Union? It's very difficult. I'm a little bit confused, and uh, whether any one of you can educate me. Thank you, thank you. Imperius, you want to go ahead? Did you want to add on to that or something separate? Sorry, brother. I'll I'll respond to that a little bit. Um, yeah, I think I I see where you're coming from in that there are some parallels with uh, both Russia and China having some 
authoritarian problems and still being large trading partners and dependent trading partners of many nations. Uh, but I think that's one reason that America and the West have taken such a strong stance on this is partly to send a message to China that uh, Taiwan is, you know, not on the table. Um, I'm sure China's looking at this right now and, and reassessing their thoughts and intentions on any future potential invasions of Taiwan and they should be. Uh, but I, I don't feel that America is just using this as a proxy war to hold down any Western or, excuse me, any European countries from rising up. I would vehemently disagree with that. Um, we were trying to support Ukrainian autonomy, which is what this has been about from the start. And, uh, you know, America didn't really uh, make any major movements as far as uh, military support uh, until Ukraine was invaded. We were hedging our bets. Um, I don't know if, if that was to try and discourage Russia from upping their ante, but I'll leave it alone from there. So so here's what we want to do. We got a lot of hands up. I'm sure this, this might have touched a nerve on it with a few people. It certainly touched one with mine, but let's just leave that as it lay, if you don't mind. Um, let's go to uh, Huey. And uh, yeah, let's go to Huey first. Uh, Wings, welcome as always. Uh, always welcome here, shipmate. Uh, we're gonna go Huey, and then we'll go from there. Huey, go ahead. Yeah. So thanks for having me. Um, so I definitely. Uh, so so I'm American, just from the outside looking in. Um, I would say that, like, I, I definitely um, see the people like. And my, my thoughts go out to the people that are being impacted by this, like the, the people on the ground, the good people from Ukraine that are being impacted. But I just question the true motives that's really going on um, because we've just been fed so much propaganda behind this Ukraine thing. And not, and again, I'm not like honest. OK, so let's let's take a step back. OK. We can see where this might touch a nerve. So I would just ask that you please remember that the propaganda that is coming from is Russia. It is not coming from the West. So let's just remind people that that's what is we're going to focus on. Go ahead, please, Huey. Dude, I, I just watched the NFL draft and it was just filled with propaganda in Ukraine. Or, uh, hey, okay. can we, can that, you, that's can we, from the U.S., can, not from okay. Russia. So are you saying so are you saying that Russia is not committing genocide? It is not illegally invaded a country? Is that what you're saying? No, that, that that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there, that there's a lot more to the story that we're not being told. Okay. And what is that? And what is that that you want to share with us? Um, I just want to. That's factually ask based. questions. That's factually I want to ask questions of okay. why some of the most corrupt politicians in history, in U.S. history. Oh, OK, we're done. All Dude, no, pushing no, Craig, the same Craig, Ukraine. Pull it. We're done. Pull it. We're done. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not. We're not going to do that, folks. Okay, we are not going to engage in this kind of behavior. Okay, it is twelve o'clock at night here on the East Coast of the United States. We are here to help Ukraine. The only people that have committed crimes is Russia, and Russia only. Ukraine was living peaceably by itself with its own democracy. Russia invaded and then slaughtered innocent men, women, and children. I really don't give a shit after that. To my honest opinion, I really don't fucking care. 
All right, end of story. So moving on, let's go to uh, Jinj. You had your hand up. We're going to go Jinj and then uh, Yufan, please. I can wait a little bit. There are people okay. waiting before me. So. Okay, Jufan, yeah, go ahead, brother. You're next, and then we're going to go to Tenny. Okay, hey, hey Craig. Uh, hey, what's going on, brother? Rough day in the bond market there, Paul. Um, <laughs> Don't get me started. Let's talk about what really matters. Uh, no, uh, hey, can I switch the topic on something that's relevant just to get us going somewhere, maybe? Or get please, me going somewhere? Please do. Okay, so my last conversation. First of all, tonight, if, if those weren't here that missed that, that panel, that was really great. And that really just, you know, this place is just going to another level and it's just really fun. Um, so Craig, last time that I was on, not the last time I was on, last time I was on with you, you know, there was some really some interesting comments that, that Colonel Vindman made about the, you know, how basically people inside the Kremlin and in, in the establishment are pointing fingers at each other, essentially that the military is like, Hey, we weren't given good Intel. You know, you said it was going to roll. They were going to roll over, uh, you know, the, the FSB is telling the army they don't know what they're doing. The oligarchs over there, you know, screwed. Um, so my question, I want to bring this up again to, to the end game. We, we, Russia is going to lose. They will pay for what they have done. Okay. Now, in order for the West and the Russia to be reconciled in some degree that, that, that results in a normal, maybe lifting of some sanctions or all sanctions at some point down the road, there has to be a leader or a movement come forth that would be up, that would that would allow that to happen. And given how intertwined the FSB and the, the, the intelligence apparatus is with the army and how established they are, it almost appears that would have to that the solution I've been grappling with is it almost has to happen from a revolution. And I'm not sure I can get there. So my question is. Do you, looking to the ultimate end game, which is a leader of Russia, who is going to be beaten in a submission from this, has to arise? Do, do you have any thoughts on, you know, is it even possible with with their society and their their, their, their how embedded all this stuff is? Or do you know what I'm talking? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I would simply say that don't underestimate the desire for powerful men to be more powerful. Right. Especially in a society like Russia. Right. So let's so let's pull that apart and let's start here. So the war is going badly. The economy is in free fall. Right. We're talking possibly depression level type of event. Right. You don't do that in a modern Western country and survive a lost war for very long. Right. I might be underestimating the security state in Russia. I might be underestimating the desire of the security state to get behind Putin. Cause let's remember Putin is just the symbol. He's not the, the, he's the avatar of the Russian security apparatus. That's who Putin is. Okay. He's not all, he's not like some Napoleon out there pulling these genius moves and doing this and doing that. Right. He's, he's a, he is the avatar of the Russian security state, the, the leftover of the KGB, if you will. Right. That's who he speaks for. The, the, where I see this going is that the FSB is like, okay, our avatar isn't working anymore. It's broken. It's not popular. Let's find another avatar that might be a more you know, amenable to trying to work within these bounds because the invasion didn't happen the way we wanted it to. So we got to kind of take a, got to take a kind of an L on that. Right. And then try to find a way to coexist because let's be honest, right. War always tells the truth. 
It always does. You win or you lose. Russia's losing. Its economy is not going to rebuild itself. You're not going to rebuild. It took Putin 15 years to build this army with no sanctions, right? In order to get this army back, you have to do it with sanctions. So that's not going to happen anytime soon. And so where do you look to? You look to trying to find a way to exist in the world. And the only way you can exist is without sanctions. And so the answer kind of speaks for itself. The West says we're not going to lift sanctions without Putin. Then the answer kind of just presents itself. And remember having to Labrenti Beria. Labrenti Beria was the second most powerful man in the Soviet Union, and he ended up with a bullet in the back of his head and his body was burned out back, right? So don't underestimate the Russian security state um, pulling strings when it has to pull. But uh, Colby, go ahead. Let me just quick follow up, though. But my question is, I'm assuming that Putin's gone, okay? Yeah. My question is, is the FSB in, in, in the apparatus that's there, are they capable or indoor in their DNA to even consider someone who would be amenable to the West to the point of, you know, sanction re- reconciliation down the road. I, I mean, are, I, is it even possible for them to put forth some, a new avatar? So, to me, sorry, I stepped outside. So I'm trying to you guys can hear the traffic, but the, the issue for me is it's about preservation, right? It's about preservation of your economy and it's about restoring some measure of Russia having a place on the world stage, right? And the only way you can do that is by not having somebody there that puts the, that leaves the sanctions in place. But I'll let Kobe take it from there. Maybe Kobe can expand on it a little bit better than I can. Okay, thanks. I'll, I'll cycle down. Thank you all for the time. Yeah, you're good. Go ahead, Kobe. Thanks, Craig. So a revolution is a very low probability scenario, near zero probability scenario. But a coup is not a zero probability scenario. And the probability continues to increase as the war continues to go more poorly and poorly for Russia. Uh, And Putin looks more like a liability for the Russian uh, state and the security apparatus, which are basically the same thing. Um, So it is entirely possible that members of the security apparatus in Russia will stage a coup to get rid of Putin. Now, who takes over is pretty much unknowable. Um, and the question of, will that person be pro-Western? Absolutely not. They won't. But that doesn't mean that that person uh, won't be realistic about the situation in which they're in. That person that takes over uh, will most likely be looking to restore something uh, close to the status quo antebellum. Um, where Russia is able to participate in the global economy, which uh, you know led to the enrichment of the oligarchs and the members of the, the higher ranking members of the state security apparatus, they want that back. They want to continue to be able to, uh, you know, have luxury homes around the world and live a, a lavish lifestyle. That's been taken away from all of them right now. Um, they want to have that wealth back. They want to have. Uh, power and control back. So if it means that they have to make certain concessions to the West in order to get that back, then that is absolutely something that they will entertain. But make make no mistake, this person, whoever ends up uh, taking over, isn't going to be some uh, Western liberal. Even the figures within Russia whom uh, very foolish figures in Western politics and Western journalism believe have been duped and continue to push this false narrative that certain individuals are 
liberals such as Navalny, and there remains many, many very, very gullible journalists in the West who believe that Navalny is a liberal. He isn't. Um, n- you know, Navalny isn't even a likely, uh, you know, uh, possible successor. Um, it's going to be somebody from the, you know, security apparatus, and they most certainly won't be any sort of uh, of liberal-minded person, but it may be somebody, it most likely would have to be somebody that's willing to work and make deals with the West, because that's the only way that Russia should uh, get any sanctions relief is by um, making the necessary concessions, um, you know, such as with total withdrawal from Ukraine and, and other things, other conditions that we should uh, set for them. Awesome. Thank, thank you all very much. Yeah, no problem, brother. Yeah, come back anytime. Um, I, I know this is I know this is a topic for you. I know you talk about it a lot, and and I appreciate you looking at the end game of how this is. But you know, the Russian security apparatus is just such a powerful thing. You just can't underestimate it, right? I mean, you know, it, it's it's bordering. I'm not saying it's bordering on totalitarianism, right? Where one man calls all the shots. But the Russian security system is deeply, deeply embedded into Russian society. It has been ever since the KGB days, and it continues to be with the FSB and the GRU. Longer than that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it goes back to the czarist days. But I'm just using colloquial terms, Colby. I'm sorry. I'm just using terms that everybody knows. But it, no, no, that's fine. I just, just to be, you know, just for you know proper historical absolutely. context, it's I, people need to understand though. It's because it's not a Soviet thing or a communist thing. It, it's longer than that. It, it is a czarist thing. Well, I I disagree with you respectfully, Craig, that um, the FSB is using him as a prop or a uh, a puppet piece. I think he has much more power than that. And if uh, if somebody's going to stage a coup, it's going to take a lot of cojones. I, I would. Uh, I would. Well, I think... Hey, 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 guys, guys, guys. <laughs> Let's. Let... One one second, sir Justin. You can, you yeah, can speak we shouldn't to jump off in, into the speculative, but yeah, I, I, I'll I'll hush and wait my turn. No, no, no. You're fine, Ryan. You're fine. I just want to let everybody know. So we're tra- we have a lot of speakers that are trying to get up. So just let's just do a PSA really quick about ground rules. No, no offense, Ryan. This isn't directed towards anybody. I just want to say just for general purposes. So the way that the that the that the rules of the forum go is that if you want to speak, we will raise you up to listener. Or excuse me, we'll raise you up to speaker. No problem. No issues at all. We will raise you up, but once you do come up, we ask that you please go to the bottom right-hand corner of your phone. That's that little heart button with that plus sign there. Go ahead and punch that, and then you'll see that hand raised, and then we'll go ahead and raise your hand, and then we'll put you in the queue to speak. We don't want crosstalk because there are so many people trying to get in that this crosstalk gets started. A lot of people are passionate about these subjects, and it can kind of sometimes tailspin a little bit, as we as we saw previously with some of our previous subjects. So just a, just a quick little reminder. That's just a PSA, just the, how the forum works. In the meantime, while we do this, we have a quick 